Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the BitCast. Today I'm joined by another guest. Why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? It's me, Alfalfa. Wait, just kidding. It's me, Altrix. As you can see, I've I've went through a bit of a self-discovery lately, so from here on out, I'll be officially known as Altrix. You can still refer to me as as Alf if you want, though I usually go by they, them nowadays. Yeah, as you can see to all the zero people who can look at you <laughs> in this podcast. Maybe they see me in spirit. Few episodes ago I talked about the first Xenoblade Chronicles and I mentioned that I didn't ever really get far with the second one but I started to get curious what that game was like because there's just a a lot of stuff to it apparently and I don't have the time to be playing more and more JRPGs lately so I've just been taking to watching this 13 hour cutscene compilation along with some other stuff, and you actually did play through the whole game and liked it and stuff, so I've been sort of, like, telling you my observations as I've gone along, so you've kind of become the Xenoblade 2 confidant. That I have. That that I have. I I think one other person in our friend group also really likes it. Uh, I don't know. I know it's a lot more divisive than the first game was. Oh yeah, for sure. So... Let's see, my Xenoblade 2 experience is that, and uh, apologies if you can hear the dog in the background, but my Xenoblade 2 experience is that I got past the first chapter, and then I got to the cat village, and I met the guy who just says, you're done, over and over. <laughs> and Very famous guy. And then, and then Bridget shows up, and then she was too hard, and then I stopped playing... And I never really got back to it, so I sold the game because I needed money at the time. And Understandable. then when I played Xenoblade Definitive Edition, the Switch detected some memory of the second game still on there, so it gave me bonus money. Nice. And that is my experience playing the game. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just open up my story for, for Xenoblade 2 by saying that Xenoblade's a really weird franchise, if you really think about it. Like, the the first game was like its, its own separate story, humans versus machines, whatever. Then for the next game, they go into a completely different universe with Xenoblade X, where it's it's more concerned about survival on an, on an alien planet. Then you get the, to Xenoblade 2, which kind of goes back to the to the original game's lore and the mythos, but also introduces some new stuff, like the concept of blades and all, and all these different titans roaming around. So you get you get the sense with these three games that Xenoblade's this series is always trying some new settings and new places. And I kind of admired that in a way, but it, but it also makes trying to piece these together really confusing. Yeah, Xenoblade is a series that has a lot of creativity for better and worse. So I guess first of all, there'll probably be... St- no small amount of spoilers for this three-year-old game, but it takes place in this world where everyone lives on the back of a giant flying monster called a titan, and they all 
swim around in the in the clouds above nothing and there's a giant world tree in the center and everyone is incredibly english or welsh or scottish like even more than in the first game it's like like they they double down on the accents yeah, absolutely. Like the first game went went for that sort of British charm, but but in Xenoblade Two they go ham with like Welsh and Scottish and all kinds of different accents. And I think it's really neat because they're really consistent with it. Because like all of the Ardanian characters are Scottish, so it kind of brings them all together in that way. Yeah, kind of kind of lends the world of Xenoblade a little bit more authenticity because you can re- recognize which sort of people belong to which sort of area. Yeah, that's a kind of thing that you don't really get a lot of in any work that I think of, and <laughs> unless it's, like, yeah. actual accents and stuff. Like, you don't you don't get too much of that in, like, fictional worlds. Yeah, the only other example that pops into my head would be, like, Dragon Quest, maybe? because oh, like, yeah. every time every time that every time that get lo- gets localized they really like to to have fun with different accents and stuff. Yeah, I remember the one Dragon Quest game I played was 4 and the f- opening chapter like all of the dialogue was written in phonetic Scottish accents. So it was really hard for me to understand <laughs> like the basic principles of the game because they were in like waist deep in the Scottish accent. I was like I don't understand what you're telling me. You just need to get better at learning your Scottish, Lottie. Is that supposed to be a Scottish accent? <laughs> I think. I'm not entirely the, sure, to be honest. Well, I, I, I don't claim to be any good at it myself. I just know that, like, get into your throat a little. Uh, I, see, see, it's no. also bad, but... <laughs> <laughs> you tried. Yeah. So anyways, I, I, I was one of the few who, like, of of our friend group anyway, who actually played Xenoblade Two and beat it to completion, and there are, there are some things that I like about it, namely the combat system. Like some people might think it's much slower than 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 Xenoblade One, and to an extent I agree because like the game has a way of holding your hand throughout the first three chapters and slowly introducing concepts, but but by the time you get to the fourth chapter, I think once you have all the necessary systems that you need, you you can start like chaining attacks together, d- doing ch- doing link combos, and the battle system just opens up completely from there. And I think it's a lot of fun. I've heard people say that the battle system is one of the best parts of the whole game. Like some people even claim that they they would just go back and start a new game immediately because they like the system that much. I I think it's one of the best parts of the game anyway. It's 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 really great. I I just was, like, overwhelmed by the whole scope of everything, which is a complaint I had about the first game and X as well, but I suppose if I could get over it for the first game, I I probably could do the same for the second game if I give it another chance someday. Well, to be fair, Xenoblade 2 is a more complicated beast than Xenoblade 1 or even Xenoblade X, because not only do you have to worry about the relationships between drivers and blades and how, how the all the elements link together but you also have to worry about like field abilities and sometimes those field abilities are things that actually help you progress through the game which i which i kind of had a hard time understanding at first what's well, not any more complex than like hms and pokemon uh well 
the th- the thing about that is that the way for the audience that doesn't know the way that you the primary way that you get blades in Xenoblade Two is you find these crystals and you have to go into a different menu to like tap into these crystals and unlock the the thing and and like turn into a blade. But but the thing about that is that it kind of works like a gotcha game and that you're not really sure what kind of blade you're getting until you actually like tap it into it and see what you get. So the, the, whatever blades you get will have its own set of 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 abilities and if you if you need something with a certain ability then you better you better hope you have a lot of crystals on hand cuz like it could take anywhere from like a few to a lot to get the exact blades with the exact abilities that you need. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, the gotcha system is like really weird and 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 the thing about that is that it, there's even rare blades hidden within that that systems and the blades all look really cool. They're all drawn by different artists, but they're so rare that you'll like rarely even see them. Like, most of the time when you activate the blades, you'll get, like, these generic-looking blade dudes. So it takes a lot of trial and error and a whole lot more patience to try and get get the exact blades that you want. Hmm. Yeah, I, think, I guess you gotta do a lot of save scumming. Well, not, well, well the, the game actually, actually prevents you from save scumming because every time you tap into a crystal, it auto-saves the game. Well, yeah, but you could save scum before like the final like step that determines which one it is, can't you? Uh, no. Once you tap into a crystal, it automatically saves, and you can't reload a save. <laughs> Kinda. I don't know. I I, I kind of would have preferred a system that was simpler than just gambling for what you want, but. Eh. It is what it is. It doesn't even make any sense because it's not like they're making any money from this besides the initial sale of the game. Yeah, there aren't any microtransactions associated with Xenoblade 2. It's just this weird gacha system that that presses you to, to test your luck against it. And I, I guess we haven't even explained what blades are. Oh, yeah. Digimon. They're, they're Digimon. <laughs> yeah. B- basically, in this world, that, that there are a bunch of people who have the potential to wield, wield these crystals that house these beings called blades. And I do really like the concept of blades. Like, they're, they're these cool, awesome partners that you, that you can have fight alongside you, not unlike a JoJo stand or a Persona. Or a Digimon. Or a Digimon, yes. But also they introduce this concept where like once a driver passes on or like discards a, bl- a blade or whatever, that that blade like loses its memories. So it has to start over with a whole new set of memories whenever it, it comes out of its crystal again, which I think is a neat concept. Oh, yeah, they really play around with that with some of the antagonists and a lot of the lore of the world. Yeah. Though in my opinion, I, I kind of wish it was explored just a little bit more. I don't think I got a whole lot out out of the new concepts that it introduced like i don't think it really went as deep as i would have liked but that could could just be my hazy memories since i haven't played this game in like two years so i watched the cutscenes recently and it's the whole and i guess to kind of start getting into spoiler stuff it's the whole crux of Jin's like campaign throughout the game he's one of the antagonists you find out that he's secretly a blade himself, and he 
resents the idea of having to lose all his memories just because a friend of his died. Oh yeah, there there was that. He was like keep, keeping himself alive through sheer force of will, and and also because he he was keeping his owner in cryostasis, I think. So so like he was just like harboring that grudge against people, and he was wa- really wanting to do something about it. So yeah, that that is like what, what one neat thing that Xenoblade's story does. Yeah, I I actually really like the characters, even. I won't say all of them, but most of the villains I, I pretty much liked. like. I didn't expect to like Malus as much as I did. Uh, Ma- Malus is pretty fun, yeah. He, I, I, I kind of like how he's just g- genuinely evil and, and, is, and it has having a ball being evil. Yeah, but he's not just evil. You can tell that he has his own thoughts and opinions on what he does and why he does it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he sure. actually does care about Jin. Like he gave him like 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 the bro hug in one one of their last scenes together. <laughs> Aw, I I kind of forgot about that actually. That's nice. But the the party members, like, I I don't know. I I feel like it's very easy. It would have been very easy for one of the characters to just be the annoying one, and I'm sure that they are annoying for some percentage of the audience, but I liked generally all the main characters for one reason or another. Yeah, I, I, I don't really have a problem with, with the main cast per se. They're, they're great. Rex is fun. Ze- Zeke is a blast. Uh, Tora is cute. Uh, who, Brid- Bridget, and, Bridget and Nia are, are cool too. I never did quite get over how ridiculous Pyra and Mithra look. Yeah, they're they're a little out there, but uh, as, as characters, I didn't really mind them. Too yeah, their their writing is fine. Their their voice acting is probably some of the better voice acting. Well, no, nah, I don't know if I'd say I, that. I, I, I don't know if I'd say that. I I, I, I do like Mithra's voice acting, but I'm I'm not really a fan of Pyra. She she kind of sounds bored in English whenever she talks. Yeah, yeah, I I think I might have mistaken her for some a different character. Yeah. No, I'll, n- I'll never get over the part where the first time you're in- you're introduced to Poppy, she she's acting like her robot maid, and Tora has to do do some lake work to explain why he has a bunch of maid dresses in his closet. And it's all lies. He's just horny. <laughs> it, Tora does lean into the tired old trope of the mascot character being a big pervert, but. To his credit, that doesn't really come up more than just a handful of scenes. Most of them optional. Yeah, yeah, they do, yeah they do a pretty good job with that. I I do really like Poppy and all and all the different forms she has, like Poppy QT and Poppy Cutie Pie. Though sadly, I never actually got the last one during my playthrough of Xenoblade Two. I only like Poppy's first form. Yeah, I'm not horny like you. Liking Poppy Base is fine too. She, Poppy she Alpha. Yeah, she she has a really like killer quote if she like kills an enemy in her Alpha form. Oh yeah, oh god, what was it? I I don't think I remember a whole lot of Poppy's quotes. Unfortunately, she says, "I'm Alpha by name and Alpha by nature." <laughs> <laughs> That's why we love you, Poppy. 
but yeah, really like fun characters. Like it, it does kind of get to the point where it feels like, okay, how many people do we need here? Because every blade is a character unto themselves, even if their role in combat is different. So you effectively have double the party size of the first game. Yeah, even though there's there's like le- less overall party members, like there's only like five to six com- compared to, to Xenoblade 1's you, you end up with like twice as many characters and you even get Rex's grandpa hitching a ride so just like combat like I looked up like footage of fighting one of the super bosses and it's just like literally every second of the fight at least two characters were saying different lines I was like <laughs> shut up I can't hear anything everyone's talking <laughs> Well, well, to be fair, there was a lot of that in Xenoblade One too, but uh, as well. But yeah, it's there, worse there because a lot of talking in Xenoblade. <laughs> like in Xenoblade One, you get three characters talking, maybe the boss. In Xenoblade Two, you get three characters. You get Rex's grandpa. You get the characters' blades. You get the enemies. You get the enemies' blades. You get the chain attack <laughs> announcer. <laughs> Yeah, there's a bit of sensory overload if, if you're particularly sensitive about, like, too many voices talking at once. It seems like the kind of thing you can probably get used to if you're willing to put up with it, but I think there's also a setting to turn it off, but it's just... <laughs> like, you know what? L- let's just yeah. turn Grandpa off. He's not fighting. He doesn't need to have battle quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Go into the options, ma- make, an op- make a separate toggle for Gramps alone. <laughs> You know, if you're going to talk, contribute. <laughs> I'm contributing. Look at me. I'm a funny mascot. I guess he's kind of a mascot character, too. Like, he, he kind of, like, he early on, he's this big titan guy, but he spends most of the game as a little mascot because he does a fake-out death, and after that, nothing really happens to him. He kind of points Rex in the right direction to find a secret cave in a later chapter. But otherwise, he doesn't really do much. He's just kind of there. Yeah, he just kind of pangs out in Rex's helmet and occasionally gives advice. I would have liked a little bit more for him, especially considering how much the other characters got. Like, he he kind of gets like a weird friendship with Dromark the tiger. But yeah. uh, even that kind of stops after a while, and he's he's just there to be Rex's grandpa. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's better than if he just died because kind of it's just kind of a cliche for the old mentor guy to die. Mm-hmm. I will say, like one thing about the story is that they they really do like pulling the someone's a blade. Oh yeah, too much. Yeah. So in this world of drivers and blades and normies, there are things called flesh eaters which are blades that have consumed a body part or cells or i don't know kidney transplant of a human (laughs) and it basically means they get to look like a human or a humanoid in some cases and if they wear the right clothing they can probably hide their core crystal which means they pass for human no one would ever know they're a blade yeah, there's, it's always a good data pass in Xenoblade Verse. And there are also Blade Eaters, which is kind of the reverse. If some driver gets their blades, a part of their blades crystal, like, implanted onto them somewhere. And 
they, like, Blade Eaters and Flesh Eaters are really long-lived in most cases. And there are a lot of times where we see a driver and, oops, they're actually a Flesh Eater. Oops, they're a Blade Eater. Even your own party members, you get, like, two in the same chapter that give a reveal like that. Yeah, yeah, they really like pulling out that trope for whatever reason, and like, it it might have been cool like if they did it like very sparingly, but I feel like they did it way too much throughout the course of the story, and it kind of loses its impact because of it. Yeah, it's it's like the only plot twist the game keeps up until until chapter eight when the game starts getting really spicy with its plot twists. Oh yeah, and, and chapter eight and onwards, the spicy plot twists just pile up and were we going to talk about that or uh eventually i, I kind of wanted to work our way over to there in case there's anything else oh, oh. uh what else uh bridget has a thing with her brother who's like the the emperor oh, of some place you're talking about morag morag yeah yeah her cousin who she calls her brother much like the squid sisters <laughs> Morag is the normie of the party. Yeah, yeah, for real. Like, Like, everyone else has their own issues, and and Morag's just like, I I just want to, like, make make sure things run smoothly for my own place. And not just that, but, like, she's also, like, the the normal character. She's not a flesh eater. She's not a blade eater. She's not a super genius like Tora. She's just (laughs) a competent driver. Yeah. And sometimes that's all you need to be. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, I think even like even the characters themselves make a note of it at one point. It's like, well, Morag, you're kind of the only one here without some kind of weird blade stuff going on. And she's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> she just knows that she's the only one who's who's even close to normal. I, I kind of wasn't too keen on, on her relationship between her and Niall and like N- Niall goes through some stuff at one point but it's it's over really quickly oh, and I wasn't the, really invested the in the fake that. out death yeah that, that mostly served to set up Nia's character arc of secretly being a flesh eater yeah which, which reminder is a plot twist we've already seen before so yeah, I guess at this point we haven't seen any sympathetic flesh eaters except for like the guy who introduces the concept. He was Vandem's old buddy, but like he's also like a really old man and stuff. So you're not you're not gonna think that your anime cat girl is a flesh eater. But oops, yeah, Wh- whoops, all flesh eaters. And then and then you can actually equip her as a blade from that moment on, <laughs> and she goes on to give Malos super cancer in their fight scene together. <laughs> that, like someone has pointed out that's actually what she does to him when she overheals him is she basically gave yeah. him cancer <laughs> oh oh you like being alive well well guess what i'm gonna heal you so much that you actually get cancer now what i, I don't remember the biology of it because i'm not a biology major but, but I, I read read it up you'll 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 be kind of surprised that that's the correlation it's also just kind of kind of weird in general, much like how a lot of things in Xenoblade are weird to ex- and hard to explain. Yeah, but a few chapters in a row, it's just like, oh, this guy is a flesh eater. Oh, now these guys are flesh eaters. I guess, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess, talking about Torna 
is Jin and Malice's gang that Neo was part of at first, but then she left to be a party member. Is they're all designed by Tetsuya Nomura, and you can tell because if you look at their character art and you imagine a green health bar curled around their faces, like you couldn't tell the difference. You'd swear it was Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, for real. Uh, you you can also notice the main cast is designed by someone else entirely. For what I think of it, I think Nomura's art kind of clashes a bit with with the main cast's art style. A little, just a little. I bit. don't know if this was just like some kind of fun artist get together or something, but I I kind of <laughs> like how it highlights that there's something a little different about Torna. It does make them stand out a little bit, and I appreciate that. There's also the fact that most, but not all, most blades and extends to the eaters is that they have American accents, and oh, I I feel like that that kind of does a good job at foreshadowing Torna all being blades, but then especially because in the Torna DLC, Child Mikhail had a British accent before he became. A blade eater in the modern era. Whoops. But but it's a little bit undermined because like Dromark still has an accent and like Zeke being a blade eater, he still has an accent. Mm-hmm. And and Rex never loses his accent and he's technically a blade eater. I don't know. I'm a, I'm I'm actually surprised you picked up on the American accent thing because I don't I don't think I ever did in my initial play. Well, you see, when you've got people like Nia and Morag flapping their guns, and you have to try to understand what they're saying, and you have another character, <laughs> and you you can understand them automatically. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. So it's all so so with all these like different characters and and factions going around, I guess it's as good a time as any to bring up and to, to bring up like the 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 wor- world itself and and how all these different factions play together okay yeah i, I mentioned that the, the titans you all live on their back in the cloud sea and each titan is essentially a city-state unto themselves and some surrounding wilderness is that what you're getting yeah. into yeah and, and the only reason these city states haven't gone and killed each other is because the church, because there's a separate faction, a separate church faction that's like, nah, guys, play nice though. Well, yeah, there is a bit of a housing crisis because the Titans are dying off and there's nowhere else to go. Yeah, so people have resorted to like fleeing to other Titans, and that causes some conflict. And the church basically has to step in and do what they can to help out. Yeah. And because it's a JRPG, the church has some shady stuff going on, because you, you can't have a good church in a JRPG, I guess. I guess not. Uh, yeah, but each of the each of the titans is... I, I read about this on TV Tropes, like, in the Japanese version, they're all named things like Superbia, Luxuria, Assedia, stuff like that, oh. the... Latin names for the seven deadly sins. I didn't. I didn't. I never knew that. Actually, that's really interesting. Well, in the English translation, they kind of spiced it up a little bit. They they kind of hid the meanings behind different things, like how tantal is based off tantalize, which is a word associated with lust, and how like more ordained translates to like big or much pride or something, stuff like that. Oh, okay. 
it's it's kind of neat to look at stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of doing it, actually. Yeah, and more subtle than what you'd usually get. Mm-hmm. Van Damme exists for, like, a chapter, I guess. Oh, yeah, th- th- he got robbed. Yeah, he did. This big, buff Australian Cheeto Puff joins your party for one chapter, and then he dies dramatically... So that and he has a and he has a really cool bird partner too. Yeah, so he dies just so Mithra can be unlocked as part of the plot, and then after like two cutscenes, he's never mentioned again. There's there's only like one point where you go and like find his bird, and and then that that's it as far as he's concerned. Yeah, I do think that uh, I've seen some people mention that they make a point of keeping Rock in their party at all times in tribute to Van Damme. <laughs> well, well, that's noble of them. Even the... Like, I watched some, like, boss fights separately of the cutscene compilation, and even the final boss, the player, was using Rock as one of their... Uh, I almost <laughs> said Personas. Blades. Uh, Rock's a pretty good blade, from what I remember. You could you could probably carry him all the way to endgame. He's Rock. He always has been, and he always will be. <laughs> uh, like, did you have like any like favorite like characters? Because like, I- I've told you some of my favorite characters. Like Zeke is the kind of character I would write, and like, if anything happens to Poppy, I'll destroy the world and then destroy <laughs> myself. <laughs> Uh yeah yeah Zeke and Poppy are definitely some of my favorites too. Uh, who else? I I generally like Mithra more more than more than I like Pyra because Mithra at least feels like she has somewhat of a personality and like actually th- thinks 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 about what she is. Well, Pyra th- also thinks about what she is too, but like. I get the feeling that Mithra is more concerned about her her place in the world, especially considering since the they're 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 supposed to be like a cursed weapon of some sort. Well, yeah, actually, it, it's kind of interesting that Pyra kind of comes off as just idealized Japanese waifu type because that's that's a character trope is like the demure, domestically trained like, polite, but still affirmative when she needs to be character. And, like, Pyra fits that to a T, but it's interesting because she's supposed to fit that to a T because she's an alternate self that Mithra created because she she despised herself. Oh. Like, it, like, you told me you didn't really play the Torna DLC, but I looked up that those cutscenes as well, and uh, it's not a fun ride, to be Mithra there. Like, being Mithra is suffering. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm probably gonna have to, like, actually check out the Torna DLC at some point, though, because I, I do hear that it focuses on Alvis. No, Alvis is from the name? first game. You mean Adam? Oh, <laughs> Adam, yeah, I mean Yeah, Adam. it goes, it, it focuses on Adam and Mithra and Jin and the girl that Jin was friends with. Mm-hmm. And I just realized saying that if anything happened to Poppy, I'll destroy everyone and myself. That's basically Jin's modus operandi. <laughs> yeah, but I but I do hear that Adam in the Torno DLC is a really fun character, and I'm kind of interested in seeing what he has to. Oh offer. yeah, just like watching all those scenes, he was my favorite part of the whole DLC. 
but yeah, it's yeah, Mithra is kind of more interesting when I had that extra context of the Torna storyline and how that played into like some of her thought processes and the creation of Pyra. And like even the voice actress I saw an interview with her is like she really does think about her characters as she's voicing the two of them. And like she she kind of recognizes that like Pyro would probably be more attached to Rex than Mithra would, even if she still has a fondness for him. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it just like a lot of people kind of rag on the voice direction of this game, and I'll admit that it's not as sharp as the first game's English dub. But I, I'd still like take it anyway because. I, I I've noticed I, I'm more into like unique voices and it's like I've never heard anyone like Nia before, so I'm completely okay with listening to her, even if sometimes I have to strain my ears to understand what she's saying. <laughs> like and a, a voice dub being poorly received, that's like almost never the actor's fault. It's usually the fault of the directors and I, I don't have any confirmation of this, but I read somewhere that they were kind of acting in the dark a bit. They were just kind of given the script and told to say those lines, and they were kind of left to their own about how they should interpret the lines. Yeah, that that's always like a, a bad sign for a dubbing for a dubbing job. Yeah, like there there are some parts in like chapter seven where Rex is like his character model is a lot more dramatic than his performance, and that's like kind of unfortunate and like i think this was like his actor's first like actual acting gig oh i didn't know that uh you can kind of tell if you listen to him but i mean hey that's still like one heck of a story you can pull out is that your first gig was the main character of a big well-received switch rpg yeah i if, if anything all i would ask of him is that he would work on his scream a little bit yeah but that you get like directors to help you with that ideally ideally yeah but not for this game apparently yeah it's like adam howden who's the voice of shulk he makes a few cameos in this game including as the shulk dlc blade and it's it's like night and day listening to him and (laughs) but I, i i don't know i never really had a problem with rex like like, I never had a problem with much of the acting. Just, like, the occasional spot where my immersion was ruined. And maybe a, the occasional yeah. bit where, like, someone is drowned out by the background music. <laughs> yeah, that does happen from time to like, time. In, like, the final boss, like, right before you fight him, like, there's this, like, chorus that's just, like, in full swing. They're like, oh, ho, 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 ho. And like, Grandpa is there lecturing the final boss, and he sounds like this meek old man. It's like, I, I can't hear you, Grandpa. The chorus is too loud. It's like... People are, sing- people are singing outside, Grandpa. You need to speak it's up. It's like that bit in Spongebob where Mr. Krabs has to, like, find the shark orchestra and get them to stop playing. <laughs> I'm trying to listen to Grandpa here. <laughs> That's that said. If I do, if I do ever play Xenoblade Two again, I'll probably just switch it over to Japanese just to see how see how that shakes out. It's probably a more consistent performance, but like like I, I'm I have a history of like 
not liking Japanese dubs. Like, I, I give them the fair shake, but I just usually just can't put up with the voices. They're usually, like, too much for me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I watched the Persona 5 anime, and it wasn't in English yet, and I just listening to Ryuji's like, Whoa, okay, Ryuji. No more sugar. <laughs> they did just release a Persona 5 dub, though, fairly recently-ish. So. Yeah, but uh, I, I saw it once. I don't need to see it again. I'll just play the game yeah, again. <laughs> yeah, fair point. But, uh... Xenoblade 2, uh, uh, so I guess now we can kind of get to, like, like the good stuff, well... Endgame spoilers. Yeah, but before the endgame stuff, I guess, is it's kind of interesting, they said that they originally wanted Torna to be a chapter in the game, they wanted it to take place between chapter 7 and chapter 8, so when I was, when I was watching the cutscenes, I paused after chapter 7 to watch all the Torna cutscenes, and it did make kind of some of the some of the fates and revelations a little more impactful because i i saw them in the order that they originally envisioned mm-hmm. but but also i i kind of think that if you like try and sandwich that in, in between those chapters i th- i think it might get in the way of pacing a little bit so i i think i understand why they cut cut that out and saved it for dlc but... yeah they I mean, I don't think it was the full size that it is. I think they kind of embellished it when they started making it its own DLC. Like, they made it even bigger and stuff. Oh, okay. Like, I don't know in what ways or to what extent, but there you go. So, anyway, after Chapter 7, like, by now you've learned that Zeke is a blade eater, Nia is a flesh eater, Pyra and Mithra can merge into... Space Hatsune Miku and Rex gets astronaut armor. Everyone falls beneath the cloud sea. And they stumble into real life. Yeah, just just like all those movies where the cartoon character ends up in real life New York City, except it's a lot scarier. Yeah, and a lot more dead. Yeah, it's basically just this desolate, wrecked cityscape. And everything's broken and ancient. It kind of reminds me of this section of Chrono Cross, which is a game you never played, but there's a similar area. It was called the Dead Sea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that from chapter 8 onwards, you, you just get slammed with, like, revelation after revelation of, like, what actually is this world that we're in, and it's all kind of actually really fascinating stuff. Oh yeah, it's very striking. A lot of things that will probably stay with me as I like write my own stories. Like, uh, well, one funny thing I have about the Cloud Sea, though, is when I played the game, I was at the Trade Guild at the beginning, I accidentally walked off the edge and into a cloud, and I was like, no, I'm gonna fall! It's like, no, no, he's just doing a swimming animation. Okay, he's fine. Uh, yeah he's cool i get like the clouds are like water i guess but so i don't know how we fall beneath them i guess there's like that gap that surrounds the world tree or something yeah either that or you swim down so deep enough that eventually you just fall right through yeah but there's still pressure though so people normally don't get that far but the ancient cityscape 
and you there are these weird mutants running around and yeah we don't really know what the deal with those are i don't think uh you well there's a little bit of evidence and then a later cutscene kind of gives you enough to figure it out oh. what they are because oh, after yeah. you defeat a really big mutant rex picks up this old science lab name tag oh yeah then you finally go into the world tree which uh you know we're, we're we're telling we're saying all this like cool stuff all these cool set pieces we never really talked about the significance of the world tree is yeah, or what so, rex is even doing this whole game <laughs> yeah so so the the basic thing is that rex wants to go into the world tree for what reason exactly <laughs> he wants to get to the top to go to like this paradise called Elysium so that he can solve oh, the housing yeah. crisis and also Pyra asked him to take her there like like they're going to the mall or something and yeah. they want to meet the, the architect the... who's basically God yeah and there's no way to get to the world tree and Elysium because there's a giant robot that's guarding the way and it kills everything mm-hmm. Yeah, so they have to find a way around that robot, and they eventually do, and then they have to travel up all the way up to the world tree, and, and it like even goes as far as to take them into outer space. Yeah, they have to climb the world tree from inside, and the interior of the trunk, like, this isn't any great Deku tree, it's like a space station on the inside. Yeah, it's, it's really freaky, and I kind of like it. Apparently this is like... The standard Xeno stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is just normal for, for World Trees and Xenoblade. And you learn more about the the you learn more about the Torna characters and what little screen time they have left, and they try to make all of them sympathetic, but it only it doesn't work for some of them. Like, yeah. Like the the twins, like I I didn't really get attached to them at all, and I only cared about Mikhail because I saw him in the Torna DLC. It's really just yeah. the Jin and Malos show. Yeah, it really is. The the other characters are just extras. We didn't talk about Amalthus very much, but he's kind of a huge bad guy. Like we talked about his church a bit, but He's yeah. a huge bad guy who's so disillusioned with the world that he wants to destroy it and himself because mm-hmm. something happened to his mom. And he, yeah. he Malos was to him what Pyra is to Rex. So Amalthus's world-ending fervor kind of spread to Malos. And, oh, yeah. and Jin's disillusionment also infected Malos a bit. So Malos is more of an extension of their combined despair than anything else. Yeah, I for, I forgot that that Malos's hatred wasn't even learned. It was just like inherited from these other characters. Also, and that kind of like bled, bled into his thought process too much. Yeah. Also, when you fight Amalthus, you can knock him into the hole that he created for an instant win. Apparently. <laughs> oh wow, that's cool. That seems kind of poetic in a way. <laughs> yeah, like, I I appreciate when games do that. It's poetic. It rhymes. <laughs> yeah, every stanza kind of rhymes with the next. Uh, and eventually, Malos meets the architect, and 
he kind of looks a little weird and they have these weird cutscenes, but like Malos meeting the architect is like my favorite cutscene in the whole game out of all the cutscenes I've seen. It's the one I've kind of gone back to the most in the short time since. Well, okay. Besides any of the Zeke cutscenes. Yeah. Cause I don't know. I just really liked the conversation where like the big bad guy is the first one to meet the ancient hermit God that no one's ever made contact with. And he, he just wants to know why he exists and what he should do. And the architect is like, do whatever you want. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about the architect just a little bit, but because in my, in my pre-researched, Oh wait, were, were, were we like going to get to that later or to him? We're just about to get to him. Okay. You can talk about him. I, I said basically my piece on him. Okay, so in my pre-research for this podcast, I ended up look, looking up things about the architect, and I came to a realization that I, I didn't make last time I played it, but but looking at it now, the architect is like was actually like a half of the of the guy. You remember that scientist guy f- f- who was like in the space station and was like disillusioned with the state of the world, so he was gonna like push the button and reset the entire universe. So, so like, what ended up happening was that his body got split in two, and, and one half, like, split off and went over to the Xenoblade 1 universe, where he, where he basically, like, used his power to make, make the tit- Titans, Bionis, and Mechanis come to life, and then the other half went into a t- an entirely different place. Well, the other half stayed. <laughs> like, this is... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He did stay. Like, this is his original world. Oh, yeah. Which is like really awesome when you really think about it, because and that kind of ties together the the two games because because the person who originally started it all they they go up to the tree and find hit half of his body just sitting there, and then back oh, back over in Xenoblade One in the, in the fantasy verse they they're dealing with the other half of his body. Are you say, It's are you saying you didn't you didn't piece together that they're the same guy? <laughs> Kinda. How did that go over your head? <laughs> I don't know. I thought that I thought it was just like a a reboot of Xenoblade for whatever reason. Well, okay. But but but, but when I but when I actually sit down and think about it, it does actually make a lot of sense. Because like only ha- only half of him stayed stayed behind, and the world below was actually his original world, and like. Now, now it all kind of like ties together in a, in a neat and fascinating way. Well, to be fair to you, the the flashback showing him creating the uni- new universe is a little different than it was in the first Xenoblade. Because like in the first Xenoblade, he was in full delusional god mode, where he's like, "Aha, I'm gonna do this." But in this game, he's a, they show the flashback, and he's a little more reasonable about it. He's like, "No, no, no, trust me, we'll be fine." <laughs> like, like this is a good idea, I swear. And he pushes the button. This was not a good idea. And but yeah, he's just like like visually one of the most unique characters I've ever seen. Being this, being half of an emaciated old man stapled onto a wormhole. Yeah, it looks really cool. And just like the party meets him, and they have kind. He just kind of like. I, I don't know, just, like, having this long, fabled character show up for just one moment near the end 
is a trope that I've always liked. I liked it with Mickey in Kingdom Hearts 1. I liked it with James McCloud in Star Fox 64. It's just a really cool trope. Yeah, it's it's re- it's really cool. And I, and I really like how they did it in Xenoblade 2. Yeah. I mean, technically he gets more than one scene, but you get what I mean. And it turns out that the reason he's just not doing anything at all is because he's also disillusioned with the world. Like, it turned out to be just as bad as his original world, if not worse. And it seems to be a running thread with the villains is that they've all given up on life. And it takes someone like Rex to kind of show them that there's still hope. Like, even Pyra and Mithra, they admit in the climax of chapter 7 that the only reason they wanted to go to Elysium was to find out how they could die because Mithra still felt guilty over the DLC incidents and Pyra has Mithra's memories so it's just yeah. oops like like everyone's screwed up except like like ex- like no oh, no 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 the Tor is not screwed up he's just <laughs> no, he's Tor's, just horny Tor's a good boy <laughs> I guess Morag, she's still kind of the normie. Yeah, a little bit. Then, then you get, then you get to like where Elysium is supposed to be, and it's like not not the paradise that Rex has had as a vision. Then they have to go to the architect directly to to try and make sense of all of this. Yeah, it's this this dusty old abandoned city, and. Like, the whole game, you're led to believe that it's going to be this, like, this lush green field, like the ending of Bajor's Mask in the Moon or something, and it's not. But then you kind of think about it in hindsight is, well, like, if Elysium was really there, like, like either something would have to maintain it and not be living there so that they could live in it, or something would be living there and not take kindly to all the new immigrants... So, like, or maybe some other option. I don't quite remember, but his plan to get to Elysium was kind of messed up from the start, but it's, it's kind of, you're kind of misdirected in a few ways that you, you, you're not really, like, expecting it to fail. You're just kind of more thinking about what's going to happen next, and then when it does fail, you're like, yeah, I probably should have seen this coming. <laughs> yeah, you really should have. Or at least that's how I felt. Like, I wasn't really... Like, I was still kind of stunned just to see how desolate it was, but I wasn't really surprised either. Yeah, especially when when you you get to to the the architect and he explains his side of the story, you kind of figure, like, yeah, he was really trying to, like, prop up this one place that's been dead for ages when he really shouldn't have. Yeah. But the story ends on a happy note. Yeah, what... Yeah, once they deal with Ma- with Malos, who ends up being the big bad who tries to destroy the entire world, uh, it tur- turns out that when they get get back down to the planet, all of the Titans like they all like migrate together and start laying down in the sea and creating new continents. Something like that. The architect kind of helped out too, because Rex yeah. gave him hope. Yeah, sometimes that's all you need. This was secretly a Danganronpa game the whole time. <laughs> but, yeah, the ending is a little bit sad because Poppy cries, and that 
Like, I, I don't care about anyone else in that scene. It's like, they made Poppy sad. That's unforgivable. Poppy crying should never happen. And if and if it does happen, please write angry letters to Model the Soft, saying Poppy should not cry. <laughs> what did she ever do to you? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the game was originally gonna end on a more, like... Well, okay, like, uh, the... the the fate of the Titans in the world was always going to be clear cut, but they they do the thing where they kind of fake out Pyra and Mithra dying, and then oh no no they'll be back. Like they were going to make it a little more ambiguous if they came back, but they decided to just be upfront with it, which it might as well because I think if you do like the possible death, like at at this point, like you got to show the body or you got to show evidence that they can't be brought back, and even then that's not enough. So it's like. If there's room for doubt, people are going to assume that they'll come back, because it's not that kind of story, so might as well just be up forward with it. Yeah, might as well. Though they, though they, they did, they did kind of like kill off at least a few characters, so I can kind of see what they might be going for if they did try to keep it more ambiguous, but and in the end, I'm kind of glad they were more upfront about it. But, uh... Yeah, that's Xenoblade 2. There's probably more, but I couldn't think of anything. Nah, I can't really think of anything either. Uh, favorite... Music's still great. Yeah, music. Did you have any songs in particular that stuck out to you? Uh, Counterattack is one, and you will recall our names, but those two are some of my favorites in the whole soundtrack, and I even have the whole soundtrack bought off of iTunes, and on, on downloaded onto my iPhone, so I listen to that on occasion. Uh, really, really good stuff. And like, I I feel like the the selection that we got in Smash Ultimate is like three songs. Is, uh, yeah, cr- cr- breadcrumbs. When when there's there's so much more that the Xenoblade Two soundtrack can offer. Well, I think that's for legal reasons because they technically don't own most of the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. But, I mean, if we get Rex's DLC, yeah. Who knows? But, yeah, it's those songs are kind of counterpoints to two songs from the first game, being Engage the Enemy and You Will Know Our Names. And in both cases, the songs, the first song transitions into the other really nicely. Like, you don't get that much in Xenoblade 1. There's, like, only two instances where Engage transitions into you will know our names but then in xenoblade 2 like basically anytime they play counterattack, it'll be followed up with you will recall our names yeah i always loved love the transition between those two songs they were they work really well together like like i love like a lot of the songs that i've heard like like the the first battle theme is like probably one of the things that got me to pay attention to this game back when I only knew it from Smash Brothers Ultimate. Yeah 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 I ad- I adore the the battle theme in Xenoblade Two probably way more than the one in Xenoblade One to be honest. Yeah like like no disrespect to Yoko Shimomura's song but no, no she she does fine work I just I think the Xenoblade One battle theme is a little boring. Yeah it's no mechanical rhythm it sure ain't but uh trying to think like i i like zeke's battle theme and i i kind of i'm a little sad that it doesn't play during his third battle 
Yeah, I I, I also like the fi- fight theme against the the giant mechanical poppy. That's it's oh. it's kind of got got this like Saturday morning mecha show flair to it, which is really fun. It does, fun. but it's just I can't be associated <laughs> with that thing. <laughs> like that's the most <laughs> ridiculous. Like, I don't know what it is, but that's where I just draw the line. Is like, I. It reminds me of a bit in No More Heroes Two when the final boss, spoilers I guess for an even older game, the final boss <laughs> turns into a parade float basically, and the helper character says, "Nope, I can't be associated with this travesty. I have standards," and he walks off. <laughs> and that's how I felt. Like if if I was like one of Rex's party members or even one of his blades, I'd be like. No, no, I can't be associated with this no, thing. No, no, I'm done with this. No, no. You are yeah, fine. I'm yeah, out. Yeah. Wake me up when counterattack starts playing. <laughs> uh, there's a lyrical song that plays often, uh, not often, yeah. like during like really poignant emotional moments. It's called "Drifting Soul," and it's not one of my favorites. But while we're comparing the other song to anime, this song kind of reminds me of like the one episode in an anime that starts the one episode in an anime that decides to play the credits over the ending scene so the characters are talking over the credits instead of like do you know what i mean how like an anime will do that for like one episode and then never again yeah yeah or or like an insert song from the where it plays a song that wasn't anywhere else in the in the show except for this one moment where it where it really hits you something like that like a like I like I was watching Demon Demon Slayer not not too long ago and and hit episode nineteen and it plays that one song near the end and it's and it's like an extreme extremely cool set piece like if anyone's watching Demon Slayer you, you'll know what I mean when you hit that moment I don't know what Demon Slayer is besides being one of Dunban's techniques in the first Xenoblade we'll we'll just pretend it's that okay I'd, I'd better watch the show and see it and see Dunban and say that's Dunban over there. <laughs> Somehow I think he'll be disappointed when you don't see Dunban. Okay, but uh, I, I don't know. There's there's like so much Xenoblade Two music that we could praise that it it wouldn't really be worth our time. Yeah, yeah, we we could do a whole episode on Xenoblade Two music, but unfortunately, we only have so much time to devote to this bot to this podcast. Yeah, because I don't I don't want to keep you all prisoner all day, and I don't want to keep I don't want to keep Altrix prisoner either. So, <laughs> any any closing things you want to say? Uh, hmm. I'm really interested in seeing where Xenoblade goes from here, cause like they they've established that they they do a great job with like settings and world building, and like coming up with all these weird things and coming up with how they all tie together. But I'm I'm really wanting to see wh- how what the next game actually does with, with all these concepts. Yeah, unless they make it like an X two. <laughs> Or or or, in a, or a completely original game altogether. Who knows? Xenoblade Pudding. That's the next game. <laughs> it, it's it's just like a cooking spinoff. Yeah, cooking spinoff with all the Xenoblade characters. Why not? And it'll it'll secretly be important, just like the Kingdom Hearts <laughs> rhythm game is. Every every time you watch that cutscene where Lin from Xenoblade X threatens to turn Tatsu into a into food. You'll, you'll know that it's a hint for the next Xenoblade yeah, game. Tatsu is actually the final boss. 
Okay, well, uh, thank you all for listening. And if you li- <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to Cooking with PT and Altrix. Yeah. And if you like to hear me talk more about games and just follow the Bitcast on Twitter, I'll post every time there's a new episode, or you could just follow on Podcast One's website directly, you know, or the mobile app. And uh, yep, be sure to check it out. See you next time. See ya. Listen to Bidcast anytime on podcast1.com and on the Podcast One app.